0: E is equal to mc squared that a very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. both rare and difficult for an American Westerner to understand an Eastern culture like the Japanese culture. This was as true in 1945 as it is today. I don't claim to be an expert on Japanese culture or history, not even close, but I think there are a few things that I've learned that will help inquiring students of this event to give some pretext to the conflict between the Allied forces and Imperial Japan leading up to and during World War II. Japan is composed of a series of heavily forested mountainous islands off the eastern coast of the continent of Asia. The rocky rough terrain made it very difficult for the ancient and medieval people of Japan to grow sufficient food for their population and to obtain materials for the survival of their civilization. In addition to the difficult landscape, Japan historically existed under constant threat from powerful neighbors on the mainland of Asia, including Russia, Korea, and especially the Chinese Empire to the West. It is only due to the prevailing westward kamikaze winds that invasions of Japan from its neighbors were infrequent. Japan has an ancient culture that stretches back for thousands of years, and by 1945 was ruled by the oldest monarchical dynasty in history. Shaped by these harsh, difficult circumstances, the traditional Japanese culture emerged to allow its people to survive and flourish. For one, a strong expectation of honesty, reliability, and courage developed among the Japanese that allowed them to trust and rely on one another to pool their resources and cooperate for mutual survival. The Japanese also adopted an emphasis on diligence and excellence in their work and crafts, because in an environment with very slim margins for error, faulty tools, equipment, and weapons could well make the difference between life and death. The Japanese also fervently held an honor-shame culture, which, among other things, assigned an unbearable level of shame for failures, which during World War II often prevented failures of leadership from being adequately identified and addressed. The Japanese also developed a strong xenophobia, a suspicion and hatred of foreigners, mixed in with a sense of racial superiority, somewhat akin to the racial superiority doctrines of the Nazis and fascists. The traditional Japanese culture also instituted a rigid authoritarian hierarchy, with complex religious and political centers of power that originated from and oscillated between the Japanese emperor and the power-sharing shogun, the warlord of Japan. The colonialism inflicted by the Europeans upon the kingdoms and nations of East Asia elicited a strong backlash by those colonized people, especially in Japan. And fair enough this reaction is most famously encapsulated during the victorian era by the meiji restoration in japan meiji was the emperor of japan from 1867 to 1912. the beginning of his reign marked a long-standing decline in the power of the shogun and the influence of the emperor expanded drastically having consolidated his new political power emperor meiji contemplated the effects and the threats of european and american influence in asia Having seen the loss of sovereignty and dignity suffered by other Asian kingdoms, Meiji thought about and consulted with his ministers long and hard as to how to ensure the independence of Japan, as well as how to rise and compete against these encroaching Western powers. The solution, it seemed, was to modernize Japan, to convert it from a feudal agrarian society into an industrialized nation with a market economy and the production capacity and level of technology equivalent to a Western nation although instilled with traditional Japanese values. In order to accomplish this, Meiji sent out Japanese intellectuals and students all over the world to learn industrialization, to attend Western universities, and to obtain as much knowledge as possible to bring back to Japan for its modernization. This knowledge would allow Japan to update its military for modern warfare. They also obtained the necessary technology for industrial production and scientific research. This enlightenment also prompted the Japanese to establish public schools, to propagate this newfound knowledge to future generations of Japanese, and to instill deep, unquestioning loyalty to the emperor. These Japanese leaders also standardized their language and centralized their government. The samurai, the traditional ruling class of Japanese provinces, initially resisted many of these transformative changes and rose up in insurrection. The samurai were forcefully crushed by the modernized imperial armies, although many samurai tenants were borrowed and romanticized for the imperial Japanese military in World War II. victory in a war against Russia in 1905 and the weakening of European powers after World War I ended in 1918 greatly strengthened the Japanese Empire. So how did the conflict begin between America and Japan in World War II? As fascism and Nazism rose to prominence in Europe, the Japanese had begun their own aggressive militant conquests of regions within East Asia. The Japanese Empire began a series of incremental expansions of their territory and influence. These expansions were driven by the need to acquire more resources for the empire, to obtain more territory, as well as the desire to dominate and enslave nearby peoples. Having already invaded and conquered Korea in 1911, the Japanese invaded Manchuria or Northern China in 1932, based on fabricated provocations that the Japanese themselves had staged. Then in 1938, Japan invaded China in a conflict that would last until the end of World War II. The Republic of China was in no position to resist the powerful, organized Japanese invading force. China was still greatly weakened by the collapse of its own imperial monarchy, a system by which the Chinese had been governed for thousands of years. As China was taking its first feeble steps into a republican system of government, a conflict eventually ensued between the Chinese communists and the Chinese nationalists. Although the nationalists held control of China at the time of the Japanese invasion, they neglected to protect China from the foreign invaders, instead choosing to expend almost all of their resources to continue the fight against the Chinese communists. China also had very low overall military strength, with inferior weapons and no armored forces. The Japanese also dominated nearby islands of China, including Taiwan. Japan intended to form a so-called Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Despite the magnanimous title, the other nations of Asia and the Pacific learned what it truly meant to fall into the sphere controlled by the Japanese Empire. The atrocities that the Japanese committed against conquered peoples of the Far East are unspeakable. Certainly millions, but probably tens of millions of military and civilians perished in these cumulative conflicts. But the truly chilling accounts come from the stories of the torture and executions of captured soldiers and civilians, including women and children. I've chosen not to give you details about the atrocities that they did, although at the risk of becoming sick to your stomach, you can read for yourself about the things that the Japanese did in places like Nanking, Manila, and Bataan. Recall how I mentioned in Episode 3 of this podcast series of the role that crystal meth played in the actions of the Japanese soldiers by removing meth-using soldiers' empathy and inhibitions. It's worth noting that when Japanese soldiers occasionally returned to their homeland and shared about what they had witnessed and done themselves, their own people, the civilians of Japan, were horrified to hear about the conduct of their own soldiers. As the war between Japan and China raged on, Japan expanded its territorial ambitions south of China toward other regions and nations, some of which were European colonial holdings. In hopes to empower China to resist Japanese aggression, many Western democracies, including the United States and the United Kingdom, sent supplies and aid to the country of China. The United States also halted shipments of airplane parts, machine tools, and aviation fuel, and eventually halted all shipments of petroleum to Japan. Without shipments from the US, the Japanese would need to obtain a new source of petroleum. Japan strategically determined to obtain sufficient oil supplies by invading the Dutch East Indies, which possessed copious oil fields. The Americans, in particular, were becoming increasingly intolerant of Japanese aggressions in Asia. Therefore, the Japanese government decided to execute a coordinated surprise attack upon the American Navy, assuming that American power and resolve would crumble with the attack, by which the Japanese assumed that they would have free reign to pursue their ambitions in Asia and the Pacific. So in the weeks leading up to their planned attack, six Japanese aircraft carriers embarked and made a discreet approach to Hawaii. Once in position in the early morning hours of December 7, 1941, over 400 Japanese aircraft were launched and approached Oahu from the Northwest. The Japanese achieved complete surprise as the Americans anticipated that any conflict would likely occur further into the Pacific at, for instance, the Philippines. The approaching first wave of aircraft was detected but initially ignored, assumed to be American aircraft conducting drills. When the Japanese reached Pearl Harbor, they bombed the ship's docked there with torpedoes that had been modified to navigate shallow waters of the harbor. They also strafed the nearby airfield, destroying idled American aircraft and the military personnel that scrambled to respond to the attack. In the end, the Japanese successfully sank four large battleships and damaged four others present. They also sank or damaged eight other lesser ships present in that harbor on that day. A total of 188 American aircraft were destroyed. Almost two and a half thousand Americans were killed, and over a thousand were wounded. The Japanese only lost 29 aircraft, five submarines, and 64 personnel one Japanese submarine commander was captured. The Japanese also coordinated attacks on other American holdings in the Pacific, including the Philippines, Guam, and Wake Island, simultaneously with their attack against Pearl Harbor. The American public was enraged by the attack since America and Japan had been at peace when the attack happened. The Americans felt as though they had been shot in the back. President Roosevelt immediately stood before Congress and requested a declaration of war. War was approved in a unanimous vote in the Senate and a 388 to one vote in the House, and the United States immediately declared war on Japan, as did the United Kingdom. This in turn resulted in Germany and Italy, both declaring war on the United States four days later, And America immediately responded in kind. The Japanese considered the attack on Pearl Harbor to be an almost complete success. However, the Japanese had missed one critical opportunity. They had not been successful in destroying the American Navy's aircraft carriers. At the outset of World War II, most of the world powers assumed that naval success lied with large gunboats and battleships that could pummel enemy ships and shorelines. The Axis power especially focused on the production of enormous battleships. However, as the war progressed, the truly valuable ships proved to be the aircraft carriers, which allows a Navy to project force through attack-type aircraft to a much more vast range over both land and sea than any gunboat. That is why, to this day, aircraft carriers are the crown jewels of the American Navy and are protected at all costs. Other ships of the Navy will, if necessary, even position themselves to block an incoming torpedo that would otherwise damage one of the carriers. The attack on Pearl Harbor was planned and executed by Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. Yamamoto had been educated in the United States at Harvard University. While Yamamoto had low regard for American culture, in fact, he despised it. He did respect American military and industrial strength. Therefore, the Pearl Harbor attack was conducted against Yamamoto's better judgment. Hence the apocryphal quote, I fear that all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve, End quote. While the quote may or may not be real, he does seem to have this sentiment and was burdened with reluctance and frustration that the other Japanese politicians could not seem to realize the magnitude of American strength. In 1943, American codebreakers would learn of Yamamoto's flight plans and arranged for aircraft to intercept his plane and shoot him down. The story goes that when searchers found the wreckage of Yamamoto's plane, his seat and body had been thrown entirely clear of the airplane and had become lodged in a tree, but his dead hand still clutched the hilt of his samurai sword. The history of the Pacific War is long and vast. Too much to cover in one episode of this podcast. Therefore, let us fast forward to the end of the Asian conflict, to the weeks leading up to the use of atomic bombs. Before the conflict, the Japanese assumed that the Americans stood no chance against, in their opinion, their own morally and spiritually superior culture. The Japanese thought of the Americans as crude, decadent, and spiritually weak. In the first few months of the Pacific War, the Japanese indeed held the upper hand. Not only had they attained their objectives of sufficient resources, including petroleum, the Japanese possessed better aircraft and weapons than the Americans. After the Pearl Harbor attack, they also enjoyed a superior navy, and were undefeated in conflicts with the Allies for the first six months of the war. Early in the war, after fighting the Japanese in close-quarter combat, the Allies would describe a Japanese soldier as fanatical, refusing to surrender and seeming to have no regard for his own life or limb, and was completely willing to sacrifice both in order to kill his enemy. To be fair, what you might call fanaticism in an enemy, you might call courage in an ally. Yet despite these distinct advantages, after six months, the tide of the war turned decidedly in favor of the Allies, and the Allies began to win. Ultimately, on average, two Japanese servicemen would die for every one American, Why is this? I believe the Allies, most notably the Americans, began to prevail for the following reasons. Number one. You can say what you want about the American military, but one thing that you cannot deny is that the American military excels at logistics. There's an anecdote I once heard that a German soldier in World War II once stormed an abandoned American camp along the European front lines and found a chocolate cake, freshly baked, which had been airlifted from Brooklyn the day before. Imagine that, a recently baked cake, present on the front lines of a great war, and which had been prepared halfway around the world. American logistics, the capacity to produce and distribute sufficient supplies, ammunition, and equipment to the servicemen in such a large military force, is second to none in the world. In contrast, the Japanese rarely had enough equipment or food, And Japanese servicemen were frequently dropped off at a location and were expected to forage or plunder food from their surroundings, which led to some horrible atrocities not fit to explain in this podcast. Number two, American industrial capacity and modernization expanded to an impressive degree, resulting in more numerous and superior ships, aircraft, and weapons to be used in the Pacific War. In contrast, the Japanese would eventually have their industrial capabilities destroyed by Allied attacks. Number three, the Americans seemed to possess a greater capacity to learn from their mistakes and to adapt. When a commander or a tactic did not work out, the Americans had no qualms of firing the officer from command or going back to the drawing board on the tactic, experimenting with styles and ideas until they worked to a sufficient degree. In contrast, The honor-shame culture of the Japanese made them resistant to adaptation. If a commander or a commander's tactic did not perform well, to change it would bring unbearable shame on that person. So his underlings would neglect and sugarcoat the commander's mistakes and shortcomings, and those mistakes would never be corrected. There is no denying the courage of the Japanese soldier, but the Americans possessed an unusually high degree of courage as well, but perhaps for different reasons than the Japanese. I feel that it's not difficult to understand the source of Japanese courage. After all, they were fighting on behalf of their god-emperor. To die on his behalf ensured honor for oneself for all eternity, and to fail or show cowardice while in the service of the emperor would earn everlasting shame. The source of the American courage, on the other hand, is more nuanced and difficult to understand. I will attempt to explain what I think is the reason, based on what I've read and heard, Of course, Americans often possess great loyalty and patriotism to their country, but that was not, I believe, the ultimate source of their courage. American values are deeply embedded within a Judeo-Christian framework, which, among many other things, assumes the sovereignty of the individual, an idea which is rooted in the belief that a person is made in the image of God. What follows from this belief is that a person has intrinsic value as an individual, with an agency and responsibilities that are self-contained, This is in contrast with other systems of thought, which attaches a person's value to something external, such as to the group they belong to, or, in the case of the Japanese, their value attaches to being loyal subjects to the emperor. The idea of individual sovereignty and agency forms the basis for the rights articulated in the American Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution. It also forms the basis for capitalism that by allowing individuals the freedom to voluntarily exchange their time and resources in a self-interested fashion, within a framework of laws of course, overall everyone will be better off than they would be otherwise, and the society will thrive as a result. So then how would a society of free moral agents organize a military to protect their freedoms from external threats? By allowing a portion of the population to willingly sacrifice their freedoms for a time in exchange for resources, training and opportunities to ascend the social hierarchy, free moral agents would be willing to risk their own lives by serving in a military. So aside from loyalty and honor and the desire to protect, an American is also likely to join the military because he believes that it will improve his life. The Japanese servicemen were frequently asked and expected to die for their emperor. This is very different from the American military system. Consider the famous quote by General Patton, No b---- ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making some other poor dumb b---- die for his country." End quote. The American military does sometimes risk the lives of its servicemen out of obvious necessity. However, they will rarely, if ever, require someone to go on a suicide mission. In addition, the American military promotes intense loyalty towards comrades by following the doctrine of no man left behind. As an American combatant, you know that if you get injured, then two other men will immediately stop what they are doing and rush to your side, carrying you to safety, where trained medics will do everything they can to preserve your life. Also, the American style actually avoids requiring you, the soldier, to unnecessarily risk your safety. The Americans have a doctrine of superior firepower or a British or German platoon might engage in a firefight when attacked, or a Japanese platoon might rush forward in a bonsai charge, an American platoon, if able to, will merely hang back, take cover, and call in an artillery barrage or airstrike to completely obliterate the area occupied by their enemies. This is why the Americans have the reputation of blowing everything up. Decimating enemy positions with copious explosions is specifically intended for the protection of American lives. The American serviceman knows that he has the support of his buddies, that he will not be abandoned, that his wounds will be treated, and that he will not be asked to unnecessarily risk his life. Because of these things and his free agency and self-interest, the American soldiers project tremendous bravery. I'm vastly simplifying a very complex issue, as best I can understand it, attempting to be as inductive as possible and examining these issues from a very coarse-grained perspective. Ultimately, the Japanese despised and underestimated their enemy, the Americans. Even the Emperor of Japan admitted to his eldest son after the war that this was, undeniably, a huge mistake. By the end of the war, the Japanese military had been driven back to their home islands and out of essentially all of their foreign holdings except parts of mainland Asia. Thanks to the island-hopping strategy, the Japanese had to spread their forces thin to defend their conquests. The thin line of defense ultimately did not prevail against concentrated and carefully chosen attack plans by the Navy and the Marines, led by Admiral Nimitz, targeting one island at a time, approaching Japan from the east. Simultaneously, the army, under General MacArthur, approached from the south, sequentially invading Japanese-occupied New Guinea, Indonesia, recapturing the Philippines, and finally reaching the mainland of Asia in order to stage a final attack on the Japanese home islands from the west. After retaking islands and territory from the Japanese, inch by bloody inch, the American strategists began planning the final invasion of the Japanese home islands, codenamed Operation Downfall. The invasion would commence by means of a D-Day style amphibious assault on the southern island of Kyushu in late 1945, which the strategists called X-Day, followed by another assault on the northern island of Honshu, scheduled for 1946, which the strategists called Y-Day. American political and military leadership were keenly aware of war weariness among the American population and hoped to achieve a quick invasion to preserve national morale and not lose resolve. Recall that Allied policy for winning the war insisted that nothing less than unconditional surrender of the Axis powers would suffice. The enemy needed to be beaten so badly that he would admit his complete defeat. After the lessons of World War I, Allied leadership knew that anything less than unconditional surrender would leave the government of Japan sufficiently intact to sow the seeds of another world war sometime in the future. A simple victory was not enough for the Allies. Their goal, was a lasting peace. Unconditional surrender means that the defeated do not get to negotiate for anything. If they say, we will surrender if you allow the emperor to stay in power, the answer is no. If they say, we will surrender if you allow us to keep a standing army, the answer is no. We will surrender if you promise not to kill everyone, the answer is still no. The one who surrenders unconditionally casts himself entirely at the mercy of the victor Any mercy given to the vanquished comes entirely from the charity of the winner. And from the perspective of the Japanese, surrender would bring them unbearable shame. The Japanese government by this time had given up on the hopes of establishing its own Greater East Asia Co Prosperity Sphere. Instead, the Empire had a number of goals. 1. To preserve the authority of the Emperor. 2. That Japan would not be occupied by any foreign forces. 3 the Japanese army was only to be disbanded voluntarily. Four, that Japanese war criminals would only be tried in Japanese courts in Japan. Five, if possible, the Japanese hoped to maintain control of mainland territory in Korea, Manchuria, and China. Clearly, these goals required an armistice that fell far short of the Allied demand for unconditional surrender. Therefore, in order to pursue these goals, the Japanese government realized that its only hope— was to make the price of victory so high in terms of the cost of blood and treasure that the Allies would not have the resolve to pay that price. Japan's only hope was to out-stomach the Americans. This total willingness to sacrifice the life of the Japanese individual could be evidenced no more famously than with the Kamikaze fighters. In an age before computers and complex electronics, Missiles and bombs could not be guided, obeyed only the laws of gravity and aerodynamics, and could easily be steered off course by a stray gust of wind. But if a person sits inside the aircraft with a bomb strapped to him, he can act as a sophisticated guidance system to fly the entire aircraft into a high value target, like an aircraft carrier. By 1945, about 900 Allied soldiers suffered per day casualties in the Pacific War. To compare, about as many American casualties suffered in the entire war in Iraq and Afghanistan combined, each lasting more than a decade, was equal to the deaths of about two months of the war in the Pacific. Far worse casualties were suffered by Japanese forces and civilians. The Japanese unwillingness to surrender could be observed again and again in the proportion of numbers killed versus captured Japanese soldiers and civilians. For instance, in New Guinea, Out of 14,000 Japanese troops fighting there, zero surrendered. Similarly, on Iwo Jima, of the 21,000 Japanese troops stationed there, about 1% were captured alive, the rest were killed. The fighting also killed an unbelievable number of civilians. In Manila, Philippines, for instance, 1,000 Allied troops were killed, whereas 17,000 Japanese troops were killed and 100,000 Filipino civilians were killed almost all of them massacred by the Japanese, as the Philippine Islands were pried from their grasp. On Okinawa, an even more chilling observation was made by the invading Allied troops. Since Okinawa was traditional Japanese territory, the Japanese fought tooth and nail for every inch of that island. But as the inexorable Allied advance took control of Okinawa, the civilian population could be seen committing mass suicide. Entire families would throw themselves off cliffs, They'd been falsely told by the Japanese government that they would be tortured, humiliated, and killed by the Americans, and believed that it was better to die at their own hands than suffer a fate worse than death in the hands of the Allies. About 95,000 civilians died during the invasion of Okinawa. When Japanese troops fought, they suffered a mortality rate of approximately 98%, which only got worse the closer the Allies approached the home islands. Keep in mind that for every two Japanese servicemen that died, one allied, probably American, servicemen died too. As they approached the Japanese home islands and the might of the Japanese Empire began to crumble, the Allies gained air and naval supremacy. Therefore, the Allies sought to disrupt Japanese transportation and industrial production in order to remove the enemy's ability to make war. To do this, they bombed factories on land and destroyed ships at sea. At first, the Allies attempted to be surgical with their destruction, by only dropping bombs on factories that produced aircraft and ship parts, on refineries and steel production facilities. But precision bombing was impossible in this conflict, as night bombing with poor visibility and weather, combined with the panic caused as the pilot came under fire, caused precision bombing strategies to fail. Also, as the centralized Japanese factories were destroyed, The line between civilian and military in Japan began to blur. Japanese industry decentralized, and manufacturing began to move into private homes where a family might be given a drill press or a lathe, and be responsible for machining a specific aircraft part, for instance. Therefore, Japanese civilian areas became industrial war production areas. Therefore, the Allied Air Forces, under the leadership of newly promoted General Curtis LeMay, began a policy of indiscriminate bombing on Japan, electing to cause widespread destruction over vast areas and even entire cities in order to cripple Japan's decentralized industry. In order to accomplish this destruction on a massive scale, the Allies produced a new weapon, a material made from a mixture of naphthenic acid and palmitic acid, napalm. Napalm is an incendiary agent. Anything it touches bursts into flame. Dousing it with water only intensifies the fire. The people of Japan made their houses out of wood and paper. And when the Allies began carpet bombing Japanese cities with napalm, you can imagine the extent of the destruction it caused. Almost the entire city of Tokyo was destroyed by napalm starting in March of 1945. An estimated 100,000 people died, and one million were left homeless. Most other Japanese cities were also firebombed. The Allies assumed that the southern island of Kyushu was manned by a garrison of about a third of a million troops. Now, a garrison is a body of troops left behind to guard an area, and about 3,000 aircraft. The Allies intended to attack with at least twice as many troops of their own, and 2,000 aircraft. Then, once the Allies secured a landing on Kyushu... They would use it as a foothold to launch an even more massive assault on the northern island of Honshu, with a million troops and 3,000 aircraft in hopes of a quick subjugation in about three months. In truth, the Allies drastically underestimated the number of Japanese guarding the home islands. Over twice as many troops were actually there, and three times as many aircraft. This would leave a nearly one-to-one ratio of allied to Japanese troops, a recipe for slaughter on both sides and a very slow drawn-out battle. The Japanese expected an imminent invasion and formulated a counterplan called Ketsu Go, which is translated as decisive operation. Ketsu Go involved several components. For one, the Japanese anticipated all possible landing routes that the Allies might attempt, and made preparations to fortify these locations to prevent the Allies from obtaining a beachhead from which to launch the rest of their attacks. Almost the entirety of the coastline of the Japanese islands are composed of tall cliffs above very narrow beaches, a terrain that would be very easy to defend and very difficult to attack. In addition, the agriculture of Japan makes use of rice paddies tall terraces that follow the contours of the landscape, also offering numerous positions that are ideal for defense and very difficult to bypass. In the end, the Japanese guesses at the routes of Allied attacks were correct, and had the Americans invaded, the defenses would have been a nightmare to overcome. Secondly, the Ketsu-Go plan would make heavy use of suicide bombers. Kamikaze was great enough danger out in the open ocean where the direction of attack was often known or guessed and the approach of kamikaze fighters could be noticed long before the attack. Close to the coasts of Japan however, kamikaze fighters could appear in a moment from behind the mountains and attack from any direction, massively increasing their effectiveness in destroying American ships. Third, the Ketsu-Go plan ordered the mobilization of the civilian population of Japan to fight against the invaders. By this point in the war, nearly all of the population of males of fighting age had either been deployed to fight on the islands and Asian mainland, or had already perished. All Japanese males between the ages of 15 and 60 years old were conscripted into the military, and all females between the ages of 17 and 40 were also conscripted. In addition, 13 million school children were armed with sharpened bamboo spears and taught how to rush and stab enemy soldiers. I just want to pause there for a moment and allow us to imagine the chances that a half-starved 11-year-old schoolgirl armed with a bamboo spear would have against a trained American G.I. That is at least twice her weight with his semi-automatic rifle, his armor, grenades, bayonet, knife, as well as his strength, speed, and endurance. A hundred children could charge at him with bamboo spears as bravely as could be, and he would kill them all with ease. Although he might suffer PTSD after doing so, the American soldier was trained and ordered to kill anyone, even children, who threatened his life or his mission. It is estimated that the Japanese would have suffered 20 million military and civilian casualties by the completion of Operation Downfall and Ketsugo. Anywhere from half a million to four million casualties would be suffered by the Allies, along with four to eight hundred thousand Allied fatalities. It was also estimated that at least one half of all the ships put to use for Operation Downfall would have been destroyed. Let me be blunt about these numbers. If the Allies, led by the Americans, had been ordered to complete Operation Downfall, a genocide would have ensued. The troops would have landed, and then swept across the islands that the Japanese people defended. The Americans would have killed almost everyone in their paths. The Japanese people and culture would have more or less ceased to exist from that point forward. Perhaps tiny remnants of them would have survived on the islands or scattered throughout the world. Being forced to kill so many people and endure so many deaths of their own, an invasion of Japan would have undoubtedly broken the American spirit. But without an invasion, Japan would remain free to slaughter and enslave civilians and troops on the Asian mainland. Worst of all, by making an armistice and allowing the remnants of the militant Japanese government to remain intact would have sowed the seeds of another world war. This was the scenario faced by Allied leadership, particularly the new American president, Harry Truman, who had been sworn in after the death of President Franklin Roosevelt in April 1945. Roosevelt had been elected president four times and whose tenure spanned the depths and recovery of the Great Depression as well as the lead-up and outbreak of World War II. As a relatively inexperienced leader, Harry Truman had very big shoes to fill. Right before the Trinity test and the detonation of the gadget replica, President Truman was informed of the existence of the Manhattan Project. Until President Roosevelt had died, the atomic bombs had been kept so secret that his vice president, even Truman, had not been informed of their existence. Now, with the final phases of the World War drawing to a close, and a bloody invasion of Japan imminent, President Truman took counsel with Allied military leadership, and they considered together the possibility of using the atomic bombs to force the unconditional surrender of Japan. They considered detonating an atomic bomb in Tokyo Harbor as a demonstration of its power, This plan was problematic, since scientific calculations suggested that detonation over water would be less dramatic than detonation over land. Someone proposed inviting Japanese delegates to a detonation on an island somewhere. This was also unlikely to work, since it was doubtful that a delegate would be able to convince the government of Japan of the atomic bomb's power. Additionally, a misfire of the newly designed atomic bomb would be an embarrassing failure on the part of the Americans, and would strengthen Japanese resolve. Lastly, American military and political leadership believed that a show of restraint or mercy would not be interpreted by the Japanese as a magnanimous gesture, but as a display of weakness to be disdained and exploited. Every day that the war in the Pacific continued produced thousands and tens of thousands of dead, not just of Americans, British, Canadian, and Australian soldiers, but of Chinese and Koreans, Malaysians, Indonesians, and Filipinos. And the leaders knew that once the Soviets joined the fight in the Pacific, significant portions of Asia and the Pacific Islands would fall into the iron hands of the communists, as so much of Europe already had. With two atomic bombs available to drop in the summer of 1945, and with the weight of the world on his shoulders, Truman asked to be given a full night to think on the decision. In the morning, after sleeping on it, and considering every factor, he told his military leadership that he had picked his poison and the least of all evils would be to drop one, and if necessary, both remaining atomic bombs on Japan. The first bomb to be dropped was Little Boy, the uranium bomb. In the summer of 1945, Little Boy was shipped to the hard-won island of Tinian, within striking distance of Japan. In the early morning hours of August 6, 1945, Little Boy was armed and hoisted into the belly of a modified B-29 Superfortress bomber, called the Enola Gay, which the pilot, Paul Tibbetts, had named after his mother. Twelve crew members operated on board the Enola Gay, and two scientists from the Manhattan Project were also present, including Berkeley physicist Luis Alvarez. The plane took off from the Tinian runway early in the morning. Because of the air supremacy established over Japan by the American Air Force, the Enola Gay encountered no enemy fighters. After six hours, the crew could see the approaching coastline of Japan. They passed over the mountainous terrain until a city came into view between the ridges. Hiroshima. Once they had flown directly over Hiroshima around 8.15 a.m. local time, the crew removed the safeties from Little Boy. The bay doors opened and the bomb dropped, and the Enola Gay made a hard turn away from the city and back towards Tinian. Less than a minute later, the plane lurched violently, jolting everyone aboard. The crew jumped to their feet and rushed to their battle stations, assuming that the plane had come under attack by enemy fighters. A moment later, the scientists realized that it had not been the enemy attack that had jolted the plane, but rather the shockwave from the atomic blast. Paul Tibbets, the pilot, turned the plane around to view the results of the explosion, and the crew and the scientists gaped in awe and horror at the sight behind them an enormous rising mushroom cloud over the landscape, the city entirely enshrouded in smoke and flames. Photographs were taken of the city of Hiroshima 24 hours after the blast. Images taken a kilometer away from the blast center showed nothing but a flattened field of charred rubble, with the occasional wall or corner of a building still standing. All of the houses were knocked flat, and the fragments of furniture, wooden carts, and half-burned household implements are scattered in a dense carpet of debris. I am not normally an emotional or sensitive person, but I will admit that I wept aloud when I read the first-hand accounts of people within the city, and even the memory of those things fills me with a visceral feeling of repulsion. I will not tell you about most of those people's experiences, nor will I tell you the worst of them, but I will encourage you, if you wish to do so, to find pictures of the shadows of Hiroshima. When Little Boy detonated 2,000 feet off the ground above the city, it produced a burst of intense light and radiation. The light was so bright, with so much energy, that people within a certain distance of the blast center were instantly disintegrated, and all that remained of them were their shadows, etched on the landscape by the intense light of the blast. For a moment their bodies cast a shadow from the blast, and the stone or wood around the shadow Was cooked to a different color by the intense light. In one picture you can see the shadow of an old person with a cane standing on stone steps. In another picture you can see the shadow of a man on a wooden wall standing beside a ladder, but the man and the ladder are gone. The radiation killed people up to two and a half kilometers away from the blast center, and the lingering burns and injuries eventually killed people up to five kilometers away. After Little Boy was dropped, the Japanese government did not fully appreciate the sheer magnitude of destruction inflicted by the first atomic bomb. Worse, the means of effective communication between Hiroshima and Tokyo had been destroyed in the blast. So Tokyo did not immediately understand the extent of the destruction, and so they did not surrender. So the Americans took Fat Man, their one remaining atomic bomb, to the island of Tinian. Three days after Little Boy exploded over Hiroshima, Fat Man was hoisted into the Enola Gay and was again flown over the island of Japan. This time the target was the city of Nagasaki. Even though Fat Man was a more powerful bomb than Little Boy, it inflicted less destruction and death because the bomb missed the city, instead veering off course to detonate over the slope of a nearby mountainside. Nevertheless, tremendous amounts of energy and radiation were reflected off the mountains into the city. Following the explosion of Nagasaki, The decision made by the Japanese government can be described by the translated quote made by Kantaro Suzuki, the Prime Minister of Japan at the end of World War II. I quote, The Supreme War Council was making every possible preparation to meet an American landing. They proceeded with that plan until the atomic bomb was dropped, after which they believed the United States would no longer attempt to land when it had such a superior weapon. The United States need not land when it had such a weapon. So at that point, they decided that it would be best to sue for peace, quote. On August 15th, 1945, a week after Nagasaki, the Japanese government surrendered unconditionally. And on September 1st, the giant American warships sailed into Tokyo Harbor and seized control of Japan. World War II was done. It is worth noting that if Japan had not surrendered, the American military anticipated having seven more fat man plutonium bombs ready to drop by X day, when the Allies were scheduled to begin their invasion of Japan. Next time on the atomic bomb. In our final episode, World War II is won but a new menace arises, and the former allies fracture and polarize into an ideological standoff. Scientific advances from the war create a surge of technological advancement, and scientists create a weapon a hundred times more destructive than the atomic bomb. With the freedom of millions at stake, and all human life on Earth under threat of destruction, the Western powers struggle with a new challenge. How to create a lasting peace. Thanks for listening. The Atomic Bomb podcast was written, presented, and edited by me, Lane Vatopka. Special thanks for edits by Gary Vatopka. Original logo and banner by Inova Enterprise. Additional credits and licensing information can be found in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider engaging in further discussion or making a donation at my thinkspot.com page. Username LVatopka, spelled L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. You can also donate or subscribe at buymeacoffee.com slash lvotapka. Copyright Lane Vitopka, 2021.